0: Hello and thank you for downloading this podcast from Teacher. I'm Jo Earp. Moving to a new school is an important time in any child's life for students from a migrant or refugee background it often means learning a new language or joining outside of the normal transition period at different points throughout the school year. I'm here at Noble Park Primary School to speak to Principal David Rothstadt about how staff support new students and their families and create a safe and secure learning environment. Here he is talking about the school context.
1: So we're in um, the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, in the city of Greater Dandenong, which is um, considered one of the most disadvantaged local government areas in Australia, and uh, has students in the the local government area. From I think in excess of 100 different nationalities, mm-hmm. our school reflects that in that we've got more than 40 nationalities represented, which then constitutes more than um, 46, 47 language groups at last at last count. Um, the school itself's um, 100, just over 100 years old. I think it was 2011. We celebrated our 100th anniversary. Mm-hmm. In terms of staff profile, we because of our classification as a disadvantaged school um, we have 50 staff um, and we have 370 students and schools of similar size would probably have around 30 staff but we are fortunate that we get additional funding so we use that to uh, I guess have quite a different staff profile to that which you'd find in other schools so we have um, multicultural education aids and uh, they speak they're in, in representing four different um, nations but many different language groups and uh, they're Vietnamese, Khmer, uh, Afghan languages and Burmese languages. Uh, they're the actual multicultural education aids that we employ and they reflect some of our largest cohorts of um, students from non-english speaking backgrounds but we also have a significant, proportion of students um, from what people would call the subcontinent, Uh, so um, I think nine different languages from India, Mm -hmm. Um, Bangla students from Bangladesh and um, a lot of students from Sri Lanka and then a rich mix and name a country and there's a good chance that they're here.
0: David Rothstadt has been Principal of Noble Park Primary for 14 years. He says there's always been a multicultural student population but there have been changes over the years.
1: Um, What I can say is that you can track some of the, um, I guess, world conflicts um, via the um, changes in the population at our school. When I arrived here, the two significant groups were the Vietnamese and the Khmer. Um, Their their parents were people who fled um, Vietnam and um, um, Cambodia uh, at the time of their their challenging conflicts and then we had um, a large larger Bosnian population mm-hmm. um, again fleeing that conflict in the in the Balkans then then the next group that we saw coming into the school was um, a large number of Sudanese students and students from the Horn of Africa and that group has is starting to wane some of them are moving out of the area but I think there's also less of those students coming into the school and then uh, most recently um, Well, actually, prior to most recently, we've had a large number of children come from Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and representing a range of ethnic groups from Afghanistan. And now the most recent burgeoning group is the Burmese um, students.
0: Migrant and refugee students can arrive at Noble Park at any time throughout the year, sometimes with very little warning. I asked David what the priorities are when it comes to supporting students and their families.
1: The first thing we do is uh, people will come to a mainstream school because they're not aware of their rights to have access to the the language uh, school. So when you arrive in the country um, in your first year, you have access to um, getting intensive English um, study at one of the language schools. And so there is a Noble Park English language school, which is less than a kilometre from us, just around the corner, Mm -hmm. Um, so our first priority when a family comes in is we'll do a quick assessment of their English capacity, and our strong recommendation is always for them to access that if we feel that they've got um, some deficits in their English, which inevitably most of them do, Mm -hmm. and we encourage them to go and access that service because they get six uh, six months up to twelve months of intensive English and um, maths training, I guess. So as they're um, focusing on that, so as they are really ready to learn when they come into the mainstream school. Mm-hmm. And some families don't want to do that from particular um, migrant groups, um, but we always say that. This is a great opportunity, and when your child comes to at the our primary school, they will be really ready to learn so this is something that's offered to all students who come as a migrant we we the, We have a process where we've got uh, one of the assistant principal is responsible for uh, that initial transition enrolment so there's an enrolment interview conducted with the new family and student and um, um, often using an interpreter whether that be one of our, our interpreters who actually works for the school mm-hmm. or we access uh, the uh, interpreter service.
0: Noble Park also adopts a different approach to most schools for placing students. Here David explains it's about relationships.
1: The way we place students in the school is probably different to what most schools do. Because we have learning houses um, and uh, their open plan, what we nominally do is we put each new child into a room and often the room that the team leader in that area uh, has. And because of the way we operate, it's very fluid in terms of students moving around during during learning times it's rare that in that first week we replace that child in the homeroom what we do is we observe where they are feeling most comfortable with whom they might make some initial friendships or relationships and uh, then based on numbers and the dynamics that we see with these students and the advice we get from the language school we then the child mm-hmm. so it's a slightly different way of operating and it means it takes a little bit more time you know that you know you on one level the child doesn't have doesn't have a home but what we are trying to ensure is that the child has the right home mm-hmm. in terms of the teacher that you know sometimes they gravitate to the teacher sometimes they gravitate to some and, and some other students who might share their language or they just might share a good relationship uh, and you know I've seen it before where I spoke to actually I spoke to um, two of our girls the other day who have now been at the school since the beginning of term two and uh, they finished up in the same homeroom and one of them is from an ethnic Chinese background and the other girl is um, from Afghanistan but they knew one another at the language school, they <laughs> had a relationship and that's what they, they were comfortable with and they gravitated to one another, so it's not broken. Why would you try and fix it? Mm-hmm. You know, because you've got some artificial way of placing children. Because of the funding that we get, I'm able to employ additional EAL support staff. Mm-hmm. And so where you've got four home groups, uh, there will be an additional staff member to support the students who um, have non-English speaking background but also other students who might need some sort of learning support. So not just those students, but they've got a general support role and it tends to be around the non-English speaking background students. And we also have a reading specialist in each learning house. So for each group of three to five home groups, there are two extra teachers. So it's a luxury and our home group sizes are small. So they're, you know, generally around 21 to 22, and quite deliberately we keep our home groups small because that way we can have more individual and adult attention um, for those students. So there's that support mechanism there, which which means it, it's and it's also about justice for, for for everyone. It means that the mainstream teacher um, has um, knows that that child who's brand new is getting supported. Um, with one of their colleagues in that team it also means that the mainstream teacher then has plenty of time to focus on their their core home group uh, who also have high learning needs because of the non-english speaking background i don't think i said at the start 90 percent of our students are non-english speaking background so it's about providing support for everyone and making workload manageable Mm -hmm. and making effective teaching manageable Mm -hmm. for those students so That's one aspect, another aspect of the support we provide, and one of the practices of our school, we we go under the banner of relational learning, and what that means is that we are always looking at ways to connect with our families and connect with our students in a really genuine way, and it's not just about, you know, waiting by chance to get to know what's happening in a child's life in terms of their family and their personal interests. So, when a new student comes into the school there will be um, they will do a relational conversation, what we call a relational conversation with the teacher and so at the start of the year that looks like um, each teacher has a, a basic script you know um, age appropriate mm-hmm. and uh, they are given time so they're released from their teaching duties to have at least a 15-minute interview with each child that they get at the start of the year so as they can build a picture of the child, you know, what food do you like, what happens at home, who are the siblings, is there anyone else living in the house, Um, what are you hoping to learn this year, the whole range of things, because as a teacher, what we know is that um, in that first few weeks of school, you probably will get to know 15 out of the 23 of your kids because they'll stand out for various reasons, you know, being that extroverted personality, being the child who's perhaps a little bit mischievous, being the child who's got some high welfare needs, um, being the child who's extraordinarily bright, um, whatever it may be. But there are probably seven or eight kids that you have not much to do with, because Mm -hmm. they're just those compliant kids. (laughs) They're just Mm -hmm. present, but they're not necessarily demanding your attention. And so... It quite it's a, quite a deliberate intent to make sure that you have a one-on-one conversation with every child at the start of the year. And in that first part of the year, the other thing we do is a thing called You Talk, We Listen. So we don't do parent teacher interviews at the start of the year. We actually invite the parents up, and which is really challenging for the parents. And we say, tell us about your child. Mm-hmm. Tell us about you. So we can get a picture of what's going on at home. We get a picture, because you ask... Teachers who, not at this school, I would hope, but teachers at other schools, what's the child's parents do for a living? I'm gonna say they probably won't have a clue. Do they do shift work? Are they the only family in the household? And here, we've got lots of situations where families have multiple families living in the household. It's just one of those things that happens. It's about, sometimes it's about poverty. Sometimes it's about having your own community. Um, sometimes it's just about the relatives have got together and it's bio- economically viable for them to do mm-hmm. that in, in the short term. But that's a pretty important thing to know about the conditions the child's going home to and learning in and what their chances are of getting decent sleep and decent nutrition, etc., cetera, et cetera, So it's, it's about trying to build a picture of the whole child, mm-hmm. not just that superficial stuff that, yep. you know, the reality is. That's what most schools have time for. And uh, I get that, but we do have the opportunity to do that and wherewithal, but it's also a strong part of our relational philosophy, get to know the child. Mm -hmm. So that was a long way of getting around to Mm -hmm. those children who come in halfway through the year or in the beginning of third term, the teachers are expected to conduct a relational interview with them. And more than likely, because of the nature of those students who come in second and third term, fourth term, there's probably there's potentially a welfare picture behind it and we have another staff member who's actually a qualified teacher but her role is actually community connectedness Mm -hmm. and so what she will do is um she might make contact with the family and see if there are any things that we need to do need to know about the child um and the family and you know get that broader picture Mm -hmm. because we don't have the facility necessarily to do the you talk we listen which is a massive logistic exercise by the time we employ all the interpreters and etc. Mm-hmm. etc. Et on the on a given night.
0: As we mentioned earlier, some of the children are coming from conflict-affected areas and are fleeing traumatic circumstances. Creating a safe and secure environment is a priority at Noble Park. Our final discussion then is on the topic of learning and play spaces, indoors and outdoors, and that includes encouraging children to connect with nature play with rocks and sticks, climb trees and build their own creations from scrap materials. The school follows a developmental learning approach that came out of its work with Kathy Walker.
1: What it means is that you set up a homeroom in such a way that, it, particularly in the junior area, um, that it has lots of stimulus in it for children's learning, lots of sensory um, materials Uh, A lot of a lot of wood finishes, natural finishes in the learning area, so as um, they create that that uh, feeling of proximity to nature, I guess. And um, I think that it's always more welcoming and warm when you've got wood rather than plastic everywhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's one aspect of it. We don't have desks. We don't have. Um, things in rows. We do have tables for the students to work on, and alternative um, furniture for children to work on the, the floor in a comfortable way. Um, we have sofas, we have bean bags, etc., etc. One of the things that we know is that children feel safe and secure if there are nooks and crannies for them. Mm-hmm. So that we we construct we use trellis and we use draped material and the like to soften the room and provide spaces that children can sit in and be secure while they're reading or doing their writing or whatever it may be and we know that the children you know respond really really well to that environment. Sometimes there's music playing in the room when they're doing their work, if it's um, if it's suitable for them to be doing that. And then when you go into the middle learning house, which is the three fours and the senior learning house, you see the same theme, but it starts to look a little bit more sophisticated in terms of having more elements of a, of your traditional classroom. There are a couple more spaces probably for them to sit and write out. Some of the materials you'll see around the room are different, it's a little bit more technology um, available to the students in, in those spaces. So it is about them being safe, but warm and wel- warm and welcoming and lots of open breakout spaces for the students to go to. So they don't have to stay in their homeroom. So what you see is that flow. And so, you know, it's our philosophy that every teacher, while you do have your own home group, every teacher owns every student in that um, learning house and they should know that there are a number of significant adults that they can go to. So you would see almost twice as many adults in a learning house as you would in a school um, that didn't have the advantages that we have through our disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, to have access to that money to employ additional staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and our spaces outside, there's been a lot of thought going into the way Create Spaces outside. Number one thing, I guess, is that many, many of our students live in flats or units, so they don't have a backyard. They don't have access to that free play space and, you know, opportunity to engage with nature. And, you know, natural pedagogies are really, really important to us at Noble Park Primary School. So if you walk around our school, you'll see all the traditional offerings in terms of, you know, basketball courts and a space for the um an open space for the kids to kick a soccer ball around and play um chasey etc etc but i can assure you chasey's better here than in most places mm-hmm. because we don't have out of bounds areas um we have um, a significant kitchen garden area where there are chooks also which are animals are fantastic pastoral um devices um, so you know some of those children who just need quiet time will go and sit around with the chooks or go into the chook pen um, we've got you know lots in, in in that garden area it's quite a tranquil place so kids will go there often just for quiet time we have outdoor um, outdoor home rooms outdoor classrooms for want a better description where we've put tables and so on so teachers can go out and work outside then we've got um, something that was a massive enterprise for us we've got a, a dry creek bed which again allows them to have that natural play, uh, which, which you see, you know, they, it's like a translation of what they do in investigations in the morning. They can go out there, there's rocks, there's sticks, there's everything. So a rule in our school is you will play with sticks and you will play with rocks because it's fun, And why wouldn't you? Um, and then we have one of the other things we've developed is a woodland, which, is an, which is actually has deciduous trees, because most of our trees are natives, so we wanted to give children that experience of the seasons. Many of our kids, of course, come from the tropics, so they don't know what seasons are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's built on a mound, and so we've, we've created mounds around our school, because one of the things that you'll find about most school grounds is they're typically flat, Mm-hmm. And so we've tried to change the profile of the school um, so it, it looks that little bit different. So the woodland, I think, has 80 flaming red maples in it. Because of our engagement in play, we have a thing called a play pot. So it has a whole lot of industrial scrap in it, and that's open every day, and the children just pull out and they can do imaginative play with that. So it's got bolts of cloth, it's got all sorts of different bits of wood, it's got seats from car factories, it's got all manner of things, and the children can just construct with that. And assistant principal um, traveled to um, Europe to look at um, natural play in forest schools in Scandinavia, mm and um, in Wales and in Spain, and um, one of the things she came back with was um, looking at our play spaces and developing sort of a forest area. So it's been a labour of love for us over the last three or four years, and we now have a, I'm saying it's ceasing to be an aspirational forest. It's actually, now you can hide in it, and it's full of Deb, you know, leaf matter debris um, twigs, sticks, branches etc etc that children can construct with and they build humpies and they build all sorts of different huts and they make little sort of art installations and so on uh, and it's uh, again just demonstrating that diversity and choice of um, opportunity for children at playtime because children are learning all the time when they're at school They're socialising and negotiating during their break times. And so we characterise those spaces as playful and diverse, and teachers are really excited because they don't do yard duty here. Um, But they do really. They do play support. Because we wanted to flip that notion of yard duty implies walking around like a sergeant major with you and telling kids what not to do. But actually, if you're out there with the kids, it's your work, you should be supporting their play and, and helping them with it and engaging with them while they're playing. Because we allow children to use sticks and rocks and so on, you have to risk management, that stuff. And we and kids are allowed to climb trees here. Um, because there's no difference to the height they climb to in a tree than that what they climb on a playground equipment. Absolutely no difference. But people get really scared because they're in a tree. But if they're climbing on playground equipment, everyone's OK. If they're up two and a half metres in the air. Mm-hmm. Which is weird, because if you fall, you're going to fall on metal. Whereas if you fall out of a tree, you're probably going to hit a couple of wooden branches and land on some relatively soft ground because we've managed that underneath. So the teachers are out there to support the risk management and say, you know, how are you going with that if they're up in a tree? I'm not so comfortable with how high you are in the tree. Do you want to make sure you come down? But the fact is, if a kid's up really high in a tree, it's because they know how to climb. Kids manage their own risk. So those spaces are all very deliberately designed to create that connection with nature, I guess, that, that sense of freedom that some of them might not get because of their personal home situation, and it's extending their learning. Mm-hmm. And I think those, all those things contribute to our kids feeling safe.
0: That's all for this episode. To keep listening or to download all of our podcasts for free, whether it's from our series on school improvement, behaviour management, global education, teaching methods, action research, or the research files, just visit acer.ac forward slash teacher iTunes or soundcloud.com forward slash teacher acer. The full transcript of this podcast is also available at teachermagazine.com.au. That's also where you'll find the latest articles, videos and infographics for free.